If you need an outline, wave your hand there. I think Brother Jason has a few. And uh, we are going through ecclesiology. That is the doctrine of the church. Uh, what we believe about the church, what the Bible teaches. And uh, last week we went through uh, what uh, the Bible basically teaches about the church. Jesus is the founder. He is the head of the church. The church is not an organization. It is a living body. Christ is its head. And members of that church are parts or members, one of another, and of that body, which makes up the local church. And this is what the Bible teaches. And so tonight, we're going to try to take from the uh, theoretical or the theological to the practical. We want a theology that is practical, that is real, that has real life application. And like we said, everybody says they're the true church. I mean, why would you go to church if they said they weren't? Uh, and so what we have to do is we have to get out our Bibles and we start matching uh, this thing up. And so uh, just... Several identifying characteristics here. Uh, we like to call them distinctives, Baptist distinctives. And uh, Brother Franz tells me that's not a word, but I'm going to keep using it anyway. Uh, uh, but uh, these are identifying characteristics. These, you can identify churches. I've, I've joked with people over the years. Uh, but normally, if I can listen to a preacher preach, or many times just watch him walk into a room, uh, I can tell you what Bible college he went to. Uh, because there are certain things that are taught and, and practiced. And, you know, what you do is you normally, you, if you try to imitate or mimic someone, you, you mimic the worst parts. Uh, and uh, I remember there was a, a preacher had a large Bible college, I won't tell you where, but he had a digestive problem. The uh, pyloric valve in his stomach was uh, absent. He was born without one. And so if he ate before he preached, he was doing really disgusting things in the pulpit. And, uh, and so normally when he was preaching, he would, <clears throat> uh, during the sermon, to make sure nothing came out as he preached. And it was amazing. The preacher boys that trained under him, <clears throat> during their preaching, just like Dr. So-and-so did. And uh, someone came up to him after he'd been in the ministry 30 or 40 years and said, listen, uh, Dr. So-and-so, I'd like to pay for you to have the surgery to get that thing fixed. And he got it fixed. And it wasn't a problem anymore. But the preacher boys were still boom, boom, all the way through their messages because they had imitated that. And, uh, you know, and people often ask me, say, oh, I guess your, your dad was a, was a Baptist preacher. No, my dad was a machinist at Black & Decker Tool & Die. Uh, he made uh, the little round shaft that they wound the armature on for the motor of drills. And if you have any uh, old Black & Decker tools dating back uh, to the early 70s, my dad made the little shaft that the motors wound on. I don't know how many thousands of them he made, 
but that was that was his job. That was one of the things that he did. And uh, people said, well, um, you know, you talk about Heartland Baptist Bible College. I guess that's where you get your doctrine, right? No. Uh, I was... Uh, I did not even know of Heartland Baptist Bible College when it was Pacific Coast Baptist. I knew it existed, but I didn't really know anybody from there. I had no attachment to it until after they moved to Oklahoma, really. And uh, we were already started as a church, and, uh, and I was pastoring here about seven years or so before I was on campus the first time. And uh, the... Truth of the matter is, we, we get our Bible from the doctrine. I mean, our doctrine from the Bible. And so, as we deal with these identifying characteristics, I want you to understand something. I don't have a Baptist book of doctrine that I'm getting this stuff out of. Uh, I do. But the only problem is, everybody says they use this book. And there are big differences. Uh, years ago, when we were starting out, we met in the basement of the Yugoslavian Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, one of the nights, the caretaker decided to come down and sit in on our uh, in, in our service. And uh, basically, it was a very poorly attended service. It was basically him and me there. And uh, we, uh, he says... Wow, you sing the same songs we do. I said, okay. He, he says, you know, we probably agree. I said, I haven't started preaching yet. And before the message was over, I was going through the book of Galatians on you can't work for your salvation, which is a big Seventh-day Adventist thing, and dealing in not worrying about keeping the law because... Jesus Christ kept the law for me. And before the whole service was over, he said, we don't have anything in common. Got up and walked out and was rather rude to us from that point forward. Uh, but what we were trying to do is just teach the Bible, yet he thought that everything he believed came from the Bible as well. The only problem is I can tell you where everything he believed came from it came from a set of books that was written by a woman named Ellen G. White. It was her interpretation of the Bible that he got his doctrine from. If you meet a Jehovah's Witness, what's one book they carry all the time? They carry a, a, a Bible. Well, up until the, the, the mid-80s, early 90s, when they finally got their own translation done, now they carry their translation of the Bible. And... Uh, Yet, if you didn't have their books, if you didn't have the writings of their churches, you could not become a Jehovah's Witness. It just doesn't work that way. Because the only place their unique and very doctrinal system comes from is found in their books. Same way with the Mormon. You can read your Bible a thousand times through. And you know what? The angel Moroni is not in this book. Holy underwear is not in this book. Uh, that pastors ought to have more than one wife at the same time, or more than one wife, period. It's just not in this book. 
the, did you see the article? It was about a month ago, I think, that the Mormon church finally admitted that Joseph Smith had somewhere between 30 and 40 wives. It's taken all the way till 2014 for the Mormon church to admit to something that history has already well documented. Now, if somebody would lie about something like that, might they lie about other things? Do, do we have an honesty problem here? And, and so, what we want to see here is turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're, we're not going to hit every verse here. And, and I want to be careful is because I've been over this material so many times over the years in our discipleship and different things that I don't want to just run over it and, and miss something. I don't want to be too tedious and bore people that have had it. But... Verse 3 says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, the ultimate context of this passage is talking about prayer, but he is trying to set up an authority in the church. And he said, Every man has a head that is Christ. He, he needs to be under Control and authority. I mean, that's the way your body works, is it not? Uh, if you do something, your head is giving direction to your body to get it done. And that's the way the church ought to be. There ought to be a dependence, a connection, a living relationship with the living Lord. Do you know that's a radical doctrine in some circles? Uh, in uh, the colonies, uh, they literally uh, confiscated land. They banished people. Uh, Massachusetts was a horrible place where this happened repeatedly. You see, they had a colony-wide, a Massachusetts Bay colony, not the Pilgrims, they had a state church. It belonged to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Massachusetts Bay Colony was run by the Congregational Church. And there was an integration of secular and religious government there. And you know what that meant? That if you lived in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, you were automatically a member of the Congregational Church of Massachusetts. You see, they believed that in order to have a homogenous society, a society that was peaceful and connected and well-run and well-ordered, everybody needed to be a member of the same church. Well, since everybody was a member of the same church, where would your tithe go? To the state church. And who collected taxes? Well, the state did. And so when you didn't pay your tithe, it was actually the fact that you weren't paying your taxes. And they would actually come and confiscate property and, and just think of the economy in those days. If you had 
food to eat, and one set of clothes to wear, you were considered middle class. If you had more than one change of clothes in your closet at home, could you imagine that? You were rich. How many of us in here qualify for being rich? I mean, that was the economy in the late 1600s, early 1700s in Massachusetts. Now, could you imagine having to give 10% of that income to a church? And then if you were going to tie to a real church, that's 20% of your income right off the top. You're not feeding your family anymore. And then the state would come in and several Baptist families were banished, exiled, their property confiscated. This happened right here in America. Why? Because the primary connection of the congregational church was not to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was to the government of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And when there was any problem with people uh, following what ought to go on in the church, guess who showed up at your door? The sheriff did. How many remember the story of Obadiah Holmes and all of that? That was, that was all connected to this very thing. He would not take a license from the Massachusetts Bay Colony government to preach. He said, here's my license. And though Obadiah Holmes didn't lose his life, if you remember the story, there was a man that helped him and made sure that he was doctored and healed him, and he was later arrested and died in custody because he had helped Obadiah Holmes. I'll tell you, history is full of people who say one thing and do another. Amen? And so... What we have here is, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, and let's just read through these verses very quickly. Ephesians 1, verse 22. It says, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head, the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Just turn over to chapter 4. It says, verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 13, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, that's a description of how the church of Jesus Christ should operate. That means that each member, and we'll touch on this in a little bit, has a direct responsibility to God. And by the way, if you thought you found the perfect church, 
You didn't. You know, that's why that verse is in there, may grow up into him. Uh, that's what we're in the process of doing here, is trying to help each of us grow up, not to the measure uh, of Pastor Montoro, praise God. Uh, we need to do a little better than that. It is a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And you want none of us measure up. And if you're saved for a hundred years, guess what? You still won't measure up. So why do we try? Uh, because we're connected. You see, when you lower the standard, you just lower the level of acceptable sin. Christ refuses to lower the standard. And He wants us to go far beyond what we would be satisfied with. Amen? I mean, every one of us, there's just something built into human nature that we want to be satisfied with where we are. How many said when you were in school, remember that? Well, this paper ought to be good enough. And the teacher said it wasn't. Anybody ever have that happen? I'm, I'm a little nervous. I'm waiting for my first homework assignment to come back from Brother Jet. I don't know what he is going to do with it, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. He, he may bleed all over it, and then I'll know that it wasn't good enough. I'm going to have to work a little harder. And uh, the truth of the matter is, the church of Jesus Christ, the members who are in it, are striving not to imitate some man or some organization, not to follow some little set of rules, but to grow up into Jesus Christ, to allow Jesus Christ to control you. Do you know they had almost a war in the Massachusetts Bay Colony between those people who believed that if you were going to be a member of the church, you needed to be saved, and by those people who said, you don't have to be saved to be a member of the church. Could you imagine arguing about that in church? Well, the congregational church had this big thing, and it raged for years. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the groups even burned down another group's building at one time or another. Uh, I mean, there were all kinds of crazy things going on. And about that time, the Wesley brothers came along. And... Uh, they were evangelists. But do you know who they were evangelists to? How many people know the story of the Wesley brothers? They were evangelists to the Church of England. You see, their burden was that the Church of England was full of unsaved people. In fact, uh, they believed, and they were actually correct in this belief, that the vast majority of people who were members of the Church of England had no real living relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, the, he was an ordained minister for many years in the Anglican Church before he found salvation. And when he found salvation, his burden was to take the message of God's salvation back to Jesus' church. Does that sound a little contradictory to you? 
You see, it is because the Anglican church never was, never has been, never will be Jesus' church. Because if it were, no one would have to take the message of salvation to them because they, in order to be a member of that church, would be seeking that living personal relationship with Christ. Are we together? Do you, do you see that? You see, what this is called, if, if you open up a Baptist history book or something, it, it will call this the Baptist distinctive of regenerate church membership. You see, most organizations in the, in the Catholic church, the Orthodox church, you are brought into membership of the church as a baby. Isn't that correct? You're written on the rolls. You are, you are baptized. Uh, no, you're not baptized. You're actually rantized in the Catholic Church. That's the Greek word for sprinkle. Uh, the Orthodox Church still immerses babies. Uh, they grab the nose, back of the head, and bonk, down in and out. And, and they, they know what the word means. Uh, the Roman Catholics said, you know, we live in a cold climate. And God understands that it would be very difficult to be baptized in the middle of winter, especially when common sense told you in the 1300s that if you took a bath between October and May, that you would die. Now, does that make sense to anybody? You see, this is how you let society influence the church rather than the church influencing society. It wouldn't hurt to take a bath in the wintertime. Amen. And uh, we wonder why people lived such short lives in the medieval period. Uh, That's one of the reasons. If you're not clean, you're not going to live very long. But the first point I'm trying to make tonight is that people who are supposed to be members of Jesus' church as individuals and as a corporate body are seeking and dependent upon and cultivating a personal living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the entire New Testament is about. How to do that. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I come to give you life. And that life more abundantly. He said, I want you to abide in me and I in you. He said, without me, ye can do nothing. So would it not be honest and biblical to say that a defining characteristic, an identifying mark of Jesus' church is membership of that church who claims to be saved and are seeking and cultivating a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you attended a church that claimed to be a Christian church where you never heard of such a thing before you came here? Okay, I want, want you to just... I'm not trying to be mean tonight. This is theology. We're trying to understand the doctrine that the Bible teaches... That can't possibly be Jesus' church if it's not connected 
to Jesus Christ. Amen? Do you believe that? I mean, the Bible teaches that that is the defining mark. It says, you'll have love one for another, but where do we get the love that we have one for another? Read First John. We get that love from God. If we have no relationship with God, if a man can't love his brother whom he has seen, he can't love God whom he has not seen. You see, this was foreign to every known denomination of church in the 1500s, except for one, the Anabaptist. And by the way, you have to understand, Anabaptist is a very broad term. Not all Anabaptists were Christians. Not all Anabaptists were true Bible believers. But all true Bible believers were classified in medieval Europe as Anabaptist because they repudiated the baptism of babes, the, the sprinkling of babes. They, they said that baptism has to come after salvation. We'll get to that in just a minute. The next distinguishing characteristic was the authority of the Word of God, that this was the sum total of all God's revelation. And if you were here for our, 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 I think we had four or five lessons on the Bible, on bibliology and how we understand the Bible and study the Bible and, and use the Bible. And I'm not going to take time to review all of that tonight. But Paul said, listen, if an angel from heaven shows up and gives you something that I didn't give you, it's not from God. And yet, how many people down through history said an angel showed up to me and gave me new revelation? Some guy, Mohammed, had that happen. Uh, Joseph Smith had that happen. Uh, Sung Young Moon had that happen. Um, let me see. Uh, I, I'd be amiss to try to complete the list. Uh, Amy Simple McPherson, the Four Square Movement, uh, all of these people... Oh, even, uh, let's not forget Oral Roberts and his 900-foot Jesus. Amen. And uh, if anybody is old enough to remember that story, he had a vision of a 900-foot Jesus who appeared to him and said, you need to raise so many million dollars or I'm going to kill you. Actually said this. And there was a guy that owned a dog racetrack in Tampa, Florida. I was actually traveling with Brother Clayton at the time, and we were in Tampa, Florida. It was all over the radio. This guy was known as a man of no character. He was, he was, he was a Las Vegas type. He ran casinos and all of these kind of things. He owned the dog racetrack. And he said, listen, Mr. Roberts, I'll give you the last $2 million if you'll just shut up. And you know what he said? Thank you very much. That tells me something about the man's theology, doesn't it, you? You see, everybody says that God spoke to them. And I believe God speaks to me every day. 
but he only tell me what's already been written down. When I make an appeal, when I need to find out something, I don't call up Brother Davison and say, uh, Brother Sam, what do you think about this? You know why? Because he'd say, now, Brother Pete, that's why we're independent Baptists. If you can't figure that out on your own, you're not near the person I thought you were. And that's what he ought to say. Now, there's nothing wrong with gaining godly counsel. But, you know, there's so much that's very simple in this book called the Bible that we just don't need commentaries for. Do you need a commentary for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God to explain that to you? Do you need a commentary for believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? Uh, Do you need a commentary to explain for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Are are those confusing verses to someone here tonight? Because if they are, don't raise your hand. Come see me after church and we'll we'll take time to explain them to you. They're they're not hard. In fact, 90% of this book that you need to... Well, everything that you need to understand and how to live for Christ is very simple. You know what's really complicated? Trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. You know, that's really complex. And I don't know any living man that has the answer. You know why? Because God never gave it to us. And I'm not going to waste my time looking for things that God didn't give me when I have so many things to do that He did give me that I'm not getting them all done now. How about you? You see, the distinguishing characteristic is, number one, a living relationship with the living Christ. Uh, The authority of this book called the Bible, it is the court of last appeal in the English language. I make no apologies. And we don't argue about it here. We use the King James Bible. 1611. We don't. You, say, you don't have a 1611. You have a 1769. You have the Olney version. Blinding. I'm sorry. Got his name wrong. Listen, Billney. I know the history. But I, I've got a facsimile copy in my office of a 1611. And I'm not going to take time to do it, but there was a man in New Jersey several years ago that took a facsimile copy. They photographed each page of a 1611 first edition Bible. And he he just got an old Oxford Bible, same one I preach out of. And he compared the two. I think in uh, all of his... I think there were 157 words, and most of them were spelling differences. He said the bottom line was not one substantive, doctrinal changing difference between a 1611 first edition and the one you hold in your hand. That's why we use it. Because we're not going to allow ourselves to go into the court of 
the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus say, you know, they, they were astounded at the way Jesus taught because he taught them as one having what? Authority, not as the scribes. You know how the scribes taught? Well, you know, the most learned rabbi of the fourth century said this was the definition and the understanding of this verse, but he is disagreed with by the most learned rabbi of the third century over here. And if we study the rabbis of the first century, we'll find that there was a totally different take on these verses. And so, you know, there's preachers that preach like that. And the only thing I've ever gotten from a preacher that preached like that is that, boy, he spends a lot of time reading books. He's a smart guy. I would hope and pray that when I preach, you wouldn't be saying, wow, Brother Montoro, he is so smart. I hope you would say, he knows his book. He just tells us what the Bible says. That's what we mean by authority. The biblical message of salvation. Now, if it's truly the church of Jesus Christ, don't you think it would teach the same thing that Jesus taught about getting saved? Is, is that a complex thought? It shouldn't be. If a church is truly Jesus' church, as Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, shouldn't that church, number one, be trying to cultivate a relationship with Jesus Christ, as Jesus said in the Scriptures? Number two, their appeal should be to the authority of Scriptures because this is where we are drawn. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was going to help us understand what? The things of God. What we have from God. What has been written down. Uh, read the last chapter of Revelation. Don't mess with the words. Bad things happen to people who mess with the words of this book called the Bible. How do you get saved in the Bible? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. How do you get seven sacraments in those verses? How do you get a Eucharist out of there? How do you get a priesthood that can give you salvation and take your salvation away? Out of those verses that the Bible talks about, how do you get those things? You don't. They have to come from somewhere else. And that's why we call this a distinguishing characteristic. Jesus' church has always taught His method of salvation. In what there are many methods that are offered down through history, offering salvation to people. The only problem we have with methods of salvation is we really don't have any way of verifying whether they work or not because once we die, we're on the other side and we don't come back. The only one that has ever made that claim, and rightfully so, is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And if I have a choice, I'm going to take his opinion. 
I'm going to believe what he says about salvation. And when someone tells me something different, uh, I'm not here to fight with you, but you're wrong. If it doesn't agree with this book. And, you know, people have argued. And we can look it up in the history books. Has anybody ever heard of a guy named Pelagius? If you've ever studied church history, he was the guy that not really invented it, but he he made a salvation by works famous. Uh, He was in the history of the Orthodox Church, which later became the Roman Catholic Church, and I believe it was one of those church councils that they held, uh, maybe the Council of Trent or somewhere along those lines, that the Roman Catholic Church officially adopts a semi-Pelagian method of salvation, that your salvation is obtained partially through your works and partially through the grace of God. I like the songwriter. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He said, this is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. A distinguishing characteristic is Bible baptism. Now, uh, I wish I had all the resources and everything at hand to teach a whole lesson on just Bible baptism. But let me just give you a working definition scripture, and I, I challenge you. I want you to go home and check this out. Immersion by a God-ordained authority in water after true biblical repentance. Uh, That is the best working definition of baptism I could come up with. Now, Jesus did not need to repent before he was baptized, but baptism was the picture that identified him. Uh, the, The announcement that the Messiah had come was John's baptism. John chapter 1, verse 32. Those that were baptized by John the Baptist had made a decision of repentance, looking to the coming of the Messiah. And having made that decision, they were then baptized in the Jordan River. And the word simply means immerse. It means to put under, to dip. And Baptism is a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. You know what? They didn't roll the stone over the door of the tomb for exercise. It had an important bearing. When we bury someone, we close the coffin. And we normally put the coffin in uh, a vault. And we seal the vault And then we bury the vault down in the ground. Why? Because we do not want to come in contact with a dead body. And that's a good thing. So how does picture baptism? How how does that fulfill the requirements of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ? Going back into the water, the death, under the water, the burial, out of the water, the resurrection. That's pretty simple now, isn't it? And I I will tell you that 
there were in times groups of men that came together and they said, what we have here is not biblical. They were talking about the existing uh, church that was part of the government and the society and all of this. And so they would have, they would appoint one of their members who was not baptized to baptize the first person, and then he would in turn baptize everybody else. Now, I've not done extensive research on this, but I asked Peter to do a little bit with me several years ago, and he said as far as he could find out that this was true, but any group that had done that in history immediately drew the line, and the baptism had to be by a duly ordained authority from that point forward. Now, that doesn't prove the point. What that does prove is there's this idea that there needs to be a biblical authority doing the baptism, that Aunt Gertrude, as spiritual and lovely as she is, as a wonderful Christian, does not have the right to give you baptism in the bathtub. Uh, Just because it's water and you get put under, it's not baptism. It's got to be by a God-ordained authority. After Matthew chapter 28, it gets pretty clear who that authority is. Jesus commissioned what? His church. He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Well, what's the biblical authority for baptism? Number one, Bible. Number two, church. You've got to have both. You see, our church didn't begin by itself. When I left for Bible college, I was a member of a, a non-denominational church, and, and I just thought, you went out and you started a church. Okay, we have church today. Well, I began to study my Bible, and I said, you know, I don't have the right to start my church if Jesus already started his. And so I joined his church as a sophomore in Bible college. And when we were sent out, we were sent out by the Cleveland Baptist Church of Cleveland, Ohio. A very sound, biblically, doctrinally correct church. Brother Thompson was its founding pastor. He was the one that ordained us and ordained me and sent me out, commissioned us to start the Open Door Bible Baptist Church. You know, Brother Thompson was ordained at the Akron Baptist Temple. You know, today, the Akron Baptist Temple is not what it once was. It's changed. Does that ruin Brother Thompson's ordination? No. What he got was what I got. You see, individual churches can change and will change. Read Revelation 2 and 3. But there has been and will be from the ministry of Jesus Christ down to the present at least one congregation that has simply taught the Bible, the Bible way. 
You know, we can't trace the history. We don't have the documents. Uh, the best illustration I can give you is that of, uh, of um, Thomas Armitage in the 1880s, wrote a book on Baptist history. He said, the water is pure at the top of the mountain when the snow falls. He says that snow filters down through the rocks. And he said, down in the valley, I got a bubbling spring of pure water. He said, it was pure on the top. He said, it's pure in the valley. He says, I'll trust God for the distance in between. Because if I get my shovel out and try to follow the route the spring came from, the only thing that I'm going to accomplish is destroying the spring. And that's true. We don't trace our history on an ordination, on a, on a genealogy of baptisms. We trace our history on doctrine. I read the writings of a man named Peter Reidman who was in prison in the 1530s in what is now uh, Czechoslovakia, I believe. I was writing our church constitution while I was reading his works. Guess what? I could have put Peter Reidman's writings in our church constitution and no one here would have known it. Because Peter Reidman didn't even have a King James Bible. It hadn't been translated for nearly a hundred years. He didn't even speak English. But the English translation of his works were so close and so simple that there was not an argument with what he believed. Later on, he would adopt communal living and joined a group called the Hutterites. But that doesn't change the fact that he believed in a personal living relationship with Jesus Christ and that that relationship needed to be cultivated and worked on every day. He believed in the authority of the Word of God, not with no man or group of men. By the way, we could call that anti-denominationalism. Amen? We could call that the autonomy of the local church. He believed that... The way you get saved is the way that Jesus said that you get saved. The way the Apostle Paul said that you get saved. He believed in Bible baptism. And he believed in evangelism. That's why he was in jail. He was spreading the gospel. Do you know that all over England there were men who were just taking the Bible and teaching people in their homes. And when they got caught, they got murdered. But they were just following the practice of the guys in mainland, uh, mainland Europe who had been doing it for 500 years before them. And they were just following what the disciples had done a thousand years before them. And that's what we want to do. You say, how can we know that we are a true New Testament church? Well, number one, we found a Bible-believing church, and that's how we were started. That was the whole thing with Brother Davis. There was a group of, there was a family up there in, in Fleshman's that bought a building and said, let's have church in it. 
And through a series of events, Brother Davis became the pastor of that. He said, I knew it wasn't right, but I just didn't know what else to do. And he came down here for a class and he said, you know, Brother Montoro, I think I need to talk to you. I don't think I'm a pastor in the church. I said, well, that may be. Let's talk about it. Uh, We did. No, this isn't a church. Because people don't have the right to start a church. Churches start churches. Can I prove that my ordinational genealogy goes back to Jesus Christ and his disciples? Absolutely not. But you know, Brother Thompson was ordained by Dallas Billington, who is one of the greatest gospel preachers of the 20th century. Over 2,000 churches were started out of the Akron Baptist Temple. Hundreds of millions of dollars were given to missions when a million dollars was a lot of money. Brother Thompson taught the Word of God. Many of you have heard him preach. Uh, I, I don't think I need to go any further back than that. Because my attention should not be going backwards. It is going forwards and giving the gospel to as many people as I can. You see, this idea of a church, a universal church that spreads out all over the world, got a problem with that. If you had an infection in your finger, do you have a responsibility to take care of that? I mean, you know what can happen if you get an infection, in your, a good infection. You cut your finger and some kind of bug gets in there and starts growing. What's going to happen to you if you don't deal with that infection? You could lose your finger. You could lose your arm. You could lose your life. If there is such a thing as a universal church then I need to be responsible for infection all over the world because it's going to affect me. You know what I found out? That what goes on in the church down the street or around the corner or across the country does not affect our responsibilities at Open Door Bible Baptist Church because we're still directly responsible to Christ. And that's why I believe in the local church. That's why I believe a body needs to be in one place, assembled together, worshiping together of one heart and of one mind. Our covenant is this book. And you know what? There's not a lot that we argue about here. You know, there's people that come in and want to argue about things. And I'm sorry to say, most of them just... Move on and go somewhere else. If you want to find a church that will agree with you, come to me and and I think I could probably point you in the right direction. I don't care what you believe. Uh, There are comic book churches out there. Uh, There's the Church of Presbyterianism. If you want to worship Elvis Presley, it's there. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think you have much chance of getting to heaven. Uh, But if that's what you want, I can't stop you. The people that are here 
want to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the preaching and the teaching is all about. In fact, in order to become a member here, you've got to get saved first. And then you've got to get baptized the Bible way. It's not that we hate every other church. It's that if you don't want to identify with Bible doctrine, why do you want to be a part of us? That's, that's a little confusing to me. I think we need to keep things simple and biblical, by the way. We, we need to be involved in evangelism. We need to be involved in maintaining a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? There's a lot of differences in churches. Uh, Brother Mike could probably tell you stories from now until uh, the cows come home just in churches he visited on deputation. Well, I could tell you some stories. And that was 20-some years ago when we were on deputation. And not all of them are good stories. But I'll tell you what. One of the things that I love so much about traveling with Brother Clayton and later in deputation, and even now when we go to Heartland and meet other preachers, is I'll meet someone... We have nothing in common. We have no common friends. We don't know anybody except the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's like we've been together all our lives. You know why? Because His church is connected to Christ. And this church is connected to Christ. And therefore, we get along together whether we want to or not. And we serve together. I couldn't tell you how many different churches we serve with in the support of our missionaries. Heartland, I believe the number is just under 600 churches that support Heartland. We're just one of those. Guess what? We work together. Because Brother Sam says so. No. In fact, Brother Sam gives glory to God that He's put a like heart and a like mind in all the pastors that support the school. Are there differences? Let me tell you, there are differences. But that's not the issue because there's some things that are the same. And that's what we call identifying characteristics. If you ever have to leave this church, that's what you want to look for. And if you don't find them, don't go there. Even if it has Baptist in the name. Even if it says, open door, Bible, Baptist church. That doesn't mean a thing. It's got to do what the Bible says. And all God's people said. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us to understand the practical application of this, of what we say we believe. Lord, it does separate us. From 90% of people who call themselves Christians. But Lord, let us be willing to be separated from people that we may be joined to you. We ask that you would work, that we may be your church here in Astoria. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll just give you a moment. Won't worry about the music tonight. You want to just slip out and spend a few moments in prayer.
will be dismissed.